The Flight Deck is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you to the donors who sustain the Museum of Flight. To support this podcast and the museum's other educational initiatives, visit museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. Today we're wrapping up Season 3 of The Flight Deck, where we've been spotlighting LGBTQ plus stories in aerospace. And by complete coincidence, it is also the 100th episode of the podcast, which I am so excited and grateful for. And we have an epic season finale, an epic way to celebrate these 100 episodes. Wendy Lawrence is a retired NASA astronaut and a retired pilot for the United States Navy. And in this episode, she joined me for a frank and honest conversation about resilience, finding community, and reflecting on her time in the Navy and at NASA through an LGBTQ lens. Wendy Lawrence, thank you for joining me today on the flight deck. My pleasure, Sean. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, you've you've done some work here with the Museum of Flight in the past. You were a Pathfinder in one of our recent classes, and you've also done an oral history for the museum, uh, which has played portions on the podcast here. So I don't want to retread some of the questions that you've already been asked, but I am always curious, especially when talking with astronauts, like what are their earliest memories of space or of the Apollo program or anything like that? What are your early memories? Well... My answer is probably a little more in-depth and a little more involved. Uh, my dad was a naval aviator. Got his wings in the early 50s, was flying jets. I wasn't born yet, but the first squadron he was sent to was out in the San Francisco Bay Area. And being a newly minted naval aviator without much experience, uh, he was paired with a more experienced aviator, my dad was going to be his wingman. So my dad was Alan Shepard's wingman. So they became good friends. And uh, then once my dad finished that flying tour, he got sent back to Patuxent River, which is the basically test pilot school for the United States Navy test pilot uh, facility, testing facility. And again, not born yet, but down the street, from where my family was living, uh, lived John Glenn and his family. So my dad also became very good friends with John Glenn. When NASA was getting ready to select the Mercury astronauts, they specifically looked for military aviators with test pilot experience. And so my dad got to participate in that selection process, as you know, along with John Glenn and Alan Shepard. Unfortunately for my dad, he was disqualified due to a small medical problem. I don't remember Alan Shepard launching in space, nor John Glenn, but we certainly talked about those individuals as I was growing up. Really, for me, I have to be honest and say what I remember first and foremost was Apollo 11. I have no doubt we were watching the missions before that, but it was Apollo 11 that left its mark. Because like, Millions of people around the world. I was watching at home on our television and probably like millions of kids around the world at that point. I went, ooh, that really looks like a fun job. I think I want to do that. And that's the great thing about being 10 years old because I had just turned 10. You just dream the dream. You don't stop to think about, ooh, how do I make it come true? What are all the steps that I need to take? You're just content to to have the dream. And did you surround yourself with other kind of space culture growing up? Did you read science fiction or watch Star Trek or anything like that? So yes, growing up, the original Star Trek came out. I think my older brother and I watched every one of those very first episodes. And, you know, we were hooked. That was the future we wanted to be a part of. I mean, when you think about it, mid-60s and some of the technologies and ideas that they were showing were pretty far-fetched and pretty advanced. Uh, So, yeah, 
I am a William Shatner person. He will always be my Captain Kirk. Yeah, and he made it into space too. So you and, and and I got to be there at that launch. Really, I didn't get a chance to meet him, but it was still a very exciting day for me to see my Captain Kirk get his opportunity to uh, get a few moments of weightlessness. Was he on the same? I can't remember if he was on the same flight as Wally Funk or if that was a different flight. Different flight. Different flight. Were you were you there for that flight too? No, no. Um, but I have had the opportunity to meet Wally Funk. Uh, quite a character. Amazing accomplishments. Very memorable individual. <laughs> yeah, I. I mean, that's her story is a whole other story that deviates from your own, but. Uh, should do a podcast about her in the future because uh, you should. We've done some on some of the other Mercury Thirteen, uh, but not on her specifically. You know, one thing I, I admire about I, I listened to the your oral history in preparation for this conversation, and one thing I really admire about how you speak, and, and you just did it here too, is you speak with so much confidence that you were gonna get to space, you were gonna be a pilot even though you were kind of growing up in the time when women weren't necessarily allowed in the service academies and there hadn't really been women astronauts. Uh, did you ever consider alternatives or were you just like, I'm going to fly come heck or high water. Nothing's going to stop me. And that's just that. Oh yeah. You have to consider other alternatives. Um, so I, yeah, I applied to civilian universities um, as I was finishing up high school um, but really at the end of the day, what did I really want to do? I really, really wanted to be an astronaut. So I think the other factor that played into it was I grew up in a Navy family. My mom's dad went to the Naval Academy. He was a Naval aviator. He was stationed at Naval Air Station Whidbey Island in 1943. So he was amongst the initial members of the Navy to be stationed at that new base. Um, and then my dad went to the Naval Academy, was a Navy pilot. So what did I know growing up? <laughs> Serving in the Navy, being a pilot. So that was also of interest to me. And I, I guess you could say that was kind of my fallback plan was, well, I'll go in the Navy because that's what we do in my family. And I'll become a pilot, hopefully, and just make it a career. It's, it's, I, I really feel that because I grew up, my dad was career Navy and so was his dad. In fact, my dad was at the Naval Academy for a year when you were there. He was a, a senior. Is that a first year or first, first class <laughs> when you were a plebe? Uh, he says he, he never met you, but he, he knows of you and he knows people who know you, but, uh, uh you know what company your dad was in? Oh, I can text him and ask him, but. I'm just curious because uh, we we would call it the other side of the world. There were the brigade and midshipmen. The way the dormitory was arranged was literally split you into two uh, regiments, first or second regiment. So if somebody was in the other regiment, they were the other side of the world. Yeah, he um, he may have been just because uh, that's just what happens. We were actually just in Annapolis a few weeks ago, uh, burying my grandfather. He's in the columbarium there. It's always, uh, I know you spent a lot of time in Annapolis. It's always a great time to go back there and visit. It's a beautiful city. Yes, it is. And so you went to the United States Naval Academy. Um, you were in one of the early classes of women. When you went, I'm curious what sort of, there have been stereotypes about the type of women who might join the military that have existed for many, many years, were you aware of any of those stereotypes? And did that inform the way other midshipmen, especially the male midshipmen, treated you and the other women in your class? So I was in the second class of women. I always take the opportunity to pay compliment to the women in the class of 80. What an incredibly difficult situation they found themselves in, having to blaze that trail. Um, you know, their life was not easy, but collectively that first year, I think they did a great job. Things felt much better, I thought, by the time the women in my class arrived just a year later. 
I think the predominant stereotype, and I don't want to <laughs> use a broad brush here because not every male midshipman felt this way. In fact, a lot were supportive. Unfortunately, it, you know, it's the case right now, as you see in the United States, it tends to be the very, very vocal minority that dominates the conversation. And, you know, unfortunately, other points of view don't get heard, don't get recognized. But the predominant point of view amongst this very vocal minority was, you don't belong here, women can't fight, they shouldn't be in the military serving. And so it, the assumption was we women didn't have what it took to serve in the military. And they wanted us to be gone. Uh, many of us were there because we wanted to serve our country. Many of us were there because we had had a family member who had served in the military. So we wanted that very same opportunity. And more than anything, it was like, just give us an opportunity to show you that we do have what it takes to wear a uniform and give back to our country by wearing that uniform. And so that was the challenge, was to prove to this minority group that we're just as capable as you are. All we want is the opportunity to show that to you. You know, a few minutes ago, I brought up my dad, and, and he's told me about some of the midshipmen who he knew who went over the wall, which he said was slang for getting up to hijinks there in town in Annapolis. Did you ever go over the wall, or were you really determined to focus on your studies, keep your head down, and, and get the job done while you were there? All right, so this is what you need to tell your dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, show up, plebe year. Plebe year is just hard for everybody because it's your transition from civilian to military life. Then my father shows up to be the superintendent for the next three years. So when people ask me, what was it like to be a woman at the Naval Academy? I have to honestly say to them, I don't know. That's the question for the other women that were there because... As soon as my dad showed up to be the superintendent, I was in a very, very different category. I was the soups kid. So, did I ever do any hijinks? Nope. It was life in a fishbowl. Everybody knew me, even though I did not know them. And I knew pretty much the eyes of the brigade were upon me. And I just said, all right, I'm going to do things by the book. I'm just going to keep my head down, work really hard, and I am going to do my best to not draw any unwanted attention to myself because I already have all this unwanted attention on me. Yeah, that was my next question, actually, about your dad showing up and, and being the super, so you already <laughs> answered that one for me. Although, you, you know, your dad had that because the commandant who was there, I um, have then retired as Admiral Winnefeld, his uh, son Sandy was there, so he had the same situation. Like, oh, your dad's the Don, yeah. <laughs> so at what point in your life did you realize that you might not be straight? Did you already know that while you were at the Naval Academy? Nope. That happened much later in my Navy career, so that was not really a factor at all at the Naval Academy. You know, for the vast majority of us, you know, even the male midshipmen, life at the Naval Academy is like, I, I'm just trying to make it through this place. And uh, kind of each day is get up one step at a time, challenge of trying to figure out how you're going to get everything done. So for me, a lot of times it's just like I'm in survival mode. You know, how am I going to get all the work done? Um, at time, you know, it's a very challenging environment. Um, the academic load, as I say to people, you know, particularly as an engineering student, you have four years to finish. You do not have the option of slowing down. So if you've got 21 credit hours, that's just the way it's going to be, and you got to figure out how to manage your time. But, yeah, for me, I felt, you know, survival mode, just make it through, focused on graduation. Uh, also, I should add, it was more difficult for the women because we were in such small numbers, and that was reflective of the numbers of women out in the fleet, in the Navy at the time. Only five women in my class were going to be allowed to select uh, a Navy pilot slot. 
only five women would select a naval flight officer slot. So that was primarily based on your academic standing. So there really, I felt a lot of pressure that if this is what I want to do, because if this is the path I'm going to take to become an astronaut, I got to get good grades. Did you find a community of support just in general to pull through this time? Who were the people that you surrounded yourself with? Yes. And I say this to young kids. To me, this is one of the most important lessons I learned at the Naval Academy is it's very difficult, in fact, virtually impossible to do it all on your own. It is very tiring. It takes a lot out of you. You need a support system. So some way, shape, or form, you've got to find that group of people who you can surround yourself with who are going to pick you up when you're down, who are going to give you that pep talk when you need it, who are going to be willing to walk alongside you when you hit those low points. During my very first summer at the Naval Academy, one of my female classmates came up to me and said, hey, I'd like to start a rowing team for women. She had been at the Naval Academy prep school. One of her good friends there had been recruited to row on the men's team. She thought, I, I want to have a women's team. So she came up to me and I said, oh, yeah, at least I know the sport of crew. My high school had a rowing team. Yeah, I'd be interested. I got my two roommates and then we kind of worked over the summer to gather another, a larger group that classmate and I went over to the boathouse and we talked to the men's coach and said, can we have a women's team? He said, well, yeah, you can spend the summer. I'll teach you how to row, but come academic year, if you can recruit enough women to fill basically two boats to take out to practice, I'll go find you a coach. So we did. When the class of 80 came back, we recruited more women. We showed up over the boathouse and he went, hmm, okay. <laughs> Now I have to deliver on my promise. <laughs> you went over to the athletic director who apparently said, okay, fine, but work them really, really hard and they'll go away. Well, we didn't go away. And they got us a coach and uh, we formed a women's rowing team. And that definitely became my support system. And it became the athletic teams, I'd say for many midshipmen, become their support system or extracurricular activities that they're involved in, like drum and bugle corps or the glee club or the, um, the drama club, which was called masqueraders. I mean, some activity like that becomes the group of midshipmen that you then know the best. And that again, becomes your support system. So I, you know, trying to make it through the Naval Academy without that, uh, you know, I, I think that's almost impossible to make it through by just being on your own. And rowing, if I'm correct, kind of became a lifelong thing for you. You've, you've got other family members who have uh, vessels named after them, but you've got two rowing shells named after you. Yep. Yes. Yeah. That, um, <laughs> about which I quipped, you know, like, you know, usually the Navy names boats after people who are no longer with us, but <laughs> I'll take this honor. No, I mean, it was uh, not not to make light of it. I That was, um, it's definitely been a highlight for me to be honored in that way, to have a rowing shell name for me. Um, yeah, that, that really, really means a lot. So you mentioned flight training, only 10 women total out of your class. Yep. Flip between the two and, and you were one of them and you went the helicopter. I did, yes. Tell me more about that. My, uh, when you're a senior at the Naval Academy, you're called a midshipman first class. So my midshipman first class cruise was on the USS Lexington, which at the time was the training uh, aircraft carrier for the Navy. So I went down to Pensacola. Periodically, the Lexington would go over to Corpus Christi so those in the jet pipeline could practice carrier landings. And while we were underway, I had an opportunity to fly on board the H-46 helicopter, which was used for um, search and rescue plane guard. And it just so happened the senior pilot was a Naval Academy grad, and he knew there were midshipmen on board. He's like, ah, come fly with me. I'm like, oh, this will be fun. And the thing that just wowed me and just was like, okay, this is it. This is what I want to do, is he took the helicopter. Oh, 
probably about 400 yards away from the ship. And the great thing about the H-46 is it had tandem rotors on top. So now you have the Army Chinook, the H-47. The H-46 was a smaller version of that. But those two rotors on top meant you didn't have to care about where the wind was coming from. You were not restricted like you are in a tail rotor aircraft. So he turns the helicopter sideways. We're far enough away that we can see the entire carrier, and he's matched the speed of the carrier. So we're probably flying sideways at about 20, 25 knots. And I thought, this is amazing. This is so much fun. And that's when I fell in love with helicopters, and I ended up on my first flying tour in the Navy, flying the H-46. You have a very unique and interesting path, too, because you you were a helicopter pilot, but also had kind of this academic career. You studied oceanography or, or ocean geology. You can correct me there. So, <laughs> yeah, I went into the helicopter community because at that point in time, I felt it offered the best career path for women. The Navy had not figured out what to do with women who were flying jets at that point in time. It was just way too early to integrate them into the operational squadrons. Helicopter community, there were more opportunities. So that was part of my decision also to go helicopters. But because I opted to fly helicopters and was not going to get jet aircraft experience, uh, knowing enough about the backgrounds required to become a shuttle astronaut, I knew that I really needed to go get my master's degree. And I had studied ocean engineering at the Naval Academy. And about halfway through my first flying tour, I got a call from the naval officer who was responsible for deciding where I was going to go next. That person was called your detailer. And he said, hey, the Secretary of the Navy, John Laneman, has just started this new program at MIT and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And we're looking for six naval officers to send there to get their master's, but you need to have a background in either oceanography or ocean engineering. And I said, and the detailer says, and I see here you studied oceanography, ocean engineering at the Naval Academy. So I was curious, are you interested in applying for the program? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, the Navy is offering me an opportunity to go to MIT in Woods Hole to get my master's, which they will pay for. Hmm, that would look good, I think, in the eyes of NASA. So it didn't work out for me to do it the first year because I was still midway through my first uh, flying tour and getting ready to deploy out on a ship. And I said, how about the, the follow-on year? Would that work? He said, oh, yeah, absolutely, because this is, you know, the program's not going away. So we'll need to fill that second year, too. So, um the deal was, you know, I had to take the GRE, and if my score was good enough and MIT accepted me, the Navy would send me. So I did a lot of studying, got accepted by MIT, and off I went to get my master's. And fortunately for me, I had a thesis advisor who also did some research for the Navy and came up with a, a research program for me that allowed me to actually publish an article in an academic journal, which I think was one of the things that helped me stand out in the eyes of NASA that here I was a military officer, but I also had published in an academic, peer-reviewed academic journal. Yeah, the early officers, like you said, they were just looking for test pilots. But by the yeah. time shuttle came around, the qualifications were, were shifting quite a bit in some ways. Yes, yeah, so because you, you had a different category of astronauts now, basically non-pilot astronauts. And so the, the academic background was um, much more important now. And you talked at length about your actual, what you did with your helicopter service and the oral history. So I'll just encourage people, it's free at the Museum of Flight's website. I'll include a link in the show notes. If you want to learn a bit more about that, um, head over to the show notes and... Uh, you can listen to an hour conversation all about that. <laughs> um, I'm curious, in, in 20th century military history, there's it's just filled with stories of these underground networks that kind of sprung up amongst LGBT people, where they just kind of found each other and built communities of support. You said that you started understanding your identity a bit later in your Navy career. Were you aware of any of these communities? Did you find other folks like that to just kind of support and know each other and be friends with? 
Uh, no, not at the time. Um, when you get to your first squatter and there, uh, there are a lot of milestones that you need to complete. Um, when I got to my squadron, there were three women there to be pilots. I was the fifth who had ever been assigned to that squadron. So again, very much life in the minority, you know, you feel the pressure of, uh, everybody's going to evaluate you and, and, uh, it's important for you to be the best pilot that you can possibly be. So, you know, I had to do my initial qualification to be what was called a helicopter second pilot. And then it was expected that you would get further qualifications and become a helicopter aircraft commander. And then eventually, a you know, a test pilot, a maintenance test pilot for the squadron. So for me, that first flying tour, it was almost like being back at the Naval Academy. There was a lot of studying, a lot of qualifications, schools to go to. I just remember being really, really busy. And then had great commanding officers who looked at the women and said, you're here on sea duty. I intend to send you out to sea. So I'm going to find commanding officers of the ships that we deploy on who will be willing to have women on board. And so we went off on some of these ships and we were the only women on board because we were blazing that trail. So for me, that first flying tour was really, really busy um, studying, doing all the workups you had to do to get ready to deploy. Um, I, I just don't remember having a lot of free time. And the free time I did have, I was periodically going back up to the Naval Academy or was also, uh, I'd, I'd run marathons, a marathon when I was at the Academy. So I think I was still doing some marathon training to do Marine Corps marathon. Is that a Quantico? No, Marine Corps marathons around DC. It's a nice tour of the monuments. Over 26 miles, grueling miles. <laughs> so you just said you, you returned to the Naval Academy later as an instructor, as a professor. In what ways had the environment there changed for women? What, what year did you return? I got back there in, uh, I think, October of 1990, and that was kind of for two reasons. One, when the Navy goes and sends you to get a master's degree, they want you to pay them back. You owe them more time. So one of the ways the Navy said you can pay us back is you can go to the Naval Academy to teach. I'm like, that, well, be happy to do that. There was also another reason why they wanted to send me back. Um, there were still challenges of fully integrating the women into the brigade of midshipmen, and so they were looking for women from the very first classes who graduated to go back now as officers and basically show the brigade of midshipmen like, Hey, you know, look at what the women have already done. So I was desirable in that I had my wings of gold. I was a naval aviator so I could go back to the midshipmen and they could see somebody who had a great deal of operational experience. So it was, I was kind of dual hatted in that regard. I guess you could say two purposes for me being back there. Um, I think in general, things were getting better. Um, there was the women more, more widely accepted. There were more opportunities for the women, more sports teams for them to be a part of. Um, but still there were, were challenges, which again was one of the reasons why I was back there. Fast forwarding to now, um, it is... <laughs> It is a completely different environment. I am just so impressed by not just the young women, but the young men who are there now. They're just, they're poised, they're confident, they're articulate, very uh, clear idea of what they want to do. You know, they understand why, why they're at the Naval Academy, the commitment that's going to be required of them. They're there because they want to be, because they want to give back to this country. So it's, uh, it, it's always very motivating to go back and see and spend some time with the Brigade of Midshipmen right now. Let's talk about your NASA career for a little bit then. I, I, I've heard about a lot of astronauts who applied multiple times to, to become an astronaut and didn't make it the first time. How many times did you apply before you were accepted to the program? 
one. But I also waited until I thought I had the qualifications that would make for a competitive application. I mean, I know several of my classmates who just as soon as they could apply, they did, even though they they knew it was very unlikely that they would get selected. But they just, you know, like, what does it hurt? I'll throw the application in. I, I took a different approach and said, well, I don't want to apply until I have my master's because I knew without that I was really I wasn't going to get selected. So um, part of that was intentional on my part. Extremely strategic, it sounds like. Um, I'm curious in the wider sense, though, I'm sure you've experienced failures over the course of your career. How have you pushed past them? How do you overcome that failure and work towards ultimate success? You know, I think you have to realize first and foremost, failure is just a part of life, you know, Everybody can, you know, whether they want to openly talk about it or not, everybody has experienced a situation where they just did not perform the way that they wanted to. And then it boils down to, okay, what am I going to do next? How am I going to respond to this situation? And again, it's part of life. So don't, yeah, you can be upset about it and feel some shame, but that can't paralyze you. Otherwise, you know, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Because you still have a lot of it left to live. So for me, it was a you know situation of, all right, get up, brush yourself off, and figure out how to move forward again. And the other critical thing I think it's important for people to realize, and I stress this a lot to young kids, I don't care what you hear people say, and I'm not going to name any names. I'll be good in this interview. But there are too many people in the country right now who, who per- say, oh, I did it all on my own. They No, sorry, you haven't. Because growing up in the United States, that means you get to grow up in a situation where you have clean air, you have clean water, you pretty much have food security. Somebody is supplying you with electricity. Now we have the Internet that you can take advantage of. We have a public school system. So you're not doing it all on your own. You're not paving the roads that you're driving on. So that is really a very false narrative that you have to do it all on your own. That said, if you want to be successful in life, you have to be able to ask for help. There's no stigma associated with that. And that's what I really want to drive home to young kids is there's no stigma associated with asking for help. And then I give them an example. Going back to MIT after five years out of a classroom, that was not easy. I had to learn how to be a student again. And I appreciated the way the Navy structured the program. We, I got to MIT over the summer semester. I only had to take one class, Calculus for Engineers. Very first test I took, I failed badly. And I was no close, not close at all to passing. So there's the moment where you, okay, what do I do next? I'm like, huh? I'm going to go to the teaching assistant, and teaching assistant and I are going to become best buddies because I'm going to spend, I don't care how many hours a day with you until I understand this information well enough that I can pass the class. <laughs> That's what I did the rest of the semester. It's like, okay, every day I'm going to go get extra instruction. I'm going to get help because I cannot do this all on my own. And if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have passed that class, and I wouldn't have passed uh, you know, the rest of the classes in MIT. So if you want to get to where you, you know, eventually get to where you want to end up in life, you're going to need a lot of people to help you along the way. Very specific question about your training. At the Museum of Flight, we have the NASA Space Shuttle Full Fuselage Trainer. That was from NASA Johnson. Do you have any memories of training on that specific piece of equipment? Oh, yeah, rappelling down the side of it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Typically, you use the FFT once you were assigned to a mission. Uh, Sometimes we would be down in the flight deck, uh, in the flight deck and mid-deck areas, kind of reviewing how things were going to be stowed, the stowage plan for our mission, particularly in the space station flights when we were doing a lot of transfer of equipment back and forth. 
uh, we had a lot of stuff in the mid deck. So we would go over there and kind of sort out our plan for getting access to all that once we were on orbit. Um, but really we used it for, um, emergency egress training. So there were a couple of ways that we would do that, you know, post landing, if you weren't able to get out through the side hatch for some reason, uh, you had to climb up through the overhead windows on the flight deck and literally rappel down the side of the vehicle. We'd also practice uh, emergency egress where we could go out the side hatch, but for some reason, the our ground support team couldn't get access to the vehicle and we had a escape slide that we could use. So that's primarily how we use the FFT. Now you were in the same class as a number of other people, including somebody who was I think maybe even the first episode of the podcast, we interviewed Scott Parazinski. Yeah, Scott and I are classmates, um, and uh, we are forever linked by uh, our nicknames. We are known as the Russian Rejects. Uh, he is too tall, and I am too short, and it all relates back to the shuttle Mir program, which virtually nobody, unless you've worked inside of NASA, worked at NASA, knows about. Um, that was kind of the precursor to the International Space Station program. It was NASA's opportunity to start working with the Russian Space Agency by having seven NASA astronauts do long-duration missions on board the Russian Space Station Mir. So Scott and I initially volunteered to be backup crew members after we finished our first shuttle flights. But to fly on Mir meant you had to be able to fit in the Russian crew transportation vehicle, the Soyuz, and fit in their spacewalking suits. And long story short, Scott and I didn't meet that, <laughs> those criteria, and so he became too tall and I became too short. But the great part of the story is uh, once Scott and I were rejected we actually ran into one another in our office building and we knew that nasa was going to have some more crew members uh, go from five to seven crew members so we knew that meant more shuttle flights and we thought wouldn't it be great if we could fly to mir together as members of a shuttle crew so fast forwarding again lo and behold we did end up together on sts 86 and on the seventh shuttle docking flight to mir so there's a very nice picture of Scott and myself looking through the hatch of the Soyuz spacecraft during our dock period on STS-86. So the Russian rejects did get to go to Mir together. Well, we'll find that picture and put it in the show notes. That'll be a fun one. You should, yeah. Well, actually, I'll, I'll send it to you. Oh, please. Thank you, Wendy. And it's in my files. Uh, speaking of Scott, he mentioned that his family picked a wake-up song of the Star Wars music uh, because they were big fans of Star Wars. A lot of people don't realize like the astronauts are woken up on shuttle by music a lot of the times. What uh, what songs did you pick or do you remember from your wake-up songs? Um, you know, I don't remember what I chose on STS-67. <laughs> that was probably too long ago um on my last flight we had uh, jim kelly was an air force academy graduate i was a naval academy graduate john phillips who was a station crew member also a naval academy graduate so our commander eileen collins thought it would be nice to have uh basically uh songs from the air force academy and the naval academy played for our wake-up music so um she played anchors away for me that was one of my wake up songs and then um what star trek was it with um the song was you know has the, you know it's been a long road getting from here to there oh yeah um when was it star trek yeah enterprise thank Bob you Bacula. <laughs> yes yes um i chose that one because for me i thought that uh captured what NASA had endured on that during, we were on the return to flight mission after Columbia. And so I just thought that whole two and a half year period where we were trying to come up with ways to meet the recommendations of the accident investigation board, that that song kind of captured, you know, that, that process, that journey. 
It's funny you mentioned Star Trek again. Um, I have this unscientific theory. I've mentioned this before that uh, a lot of LGBT people are drawn to space exploration because of Star Trek. Um, they watch Star Trek and it's this show where a person's identity both doesn't matter. And I don't mean that flippantly. I just mean like people just exist <laughs> and people, it's not a question. It's not a, a thing. It's not a big deal. But at the same time, they're just, they're also allowed to make it a part of themselves publicly uh, in a way that I think I certainly, and I know a lot of LGBT people hope for. And so I, I, I feel like a lot of people are drawn towards working at NASA uh, because they want to make that happen. They, they saw that and they're like, I want that. But, you know, to your, what you said earlier about, you know, I grew up not seeing women as astronauts. That said, I grew up watching Star Trek. I saw women on Star Trek. Thank you, Lieutenant Uhura. I mean, what a tremendous impact she had. And I think it was great that she got a chance to realize that, uh, you know, as she lived her life. And NASA took advantage of that as well. I think it was great to get her involved in the selection of astronauts. So, uh, you know, yeah, I didn't see people at NASA, but I did on Star Trek. And that had an impact that made an impression. And NASA is a great, it's a great place to work at. When I got there in 92, I think at least 30% of the astronaut office at the time were women. You looked across the center and like, there are women everywhere. This was just so different than my experience in the Navy. I'm like, this is a breath of fresh air. I love it. Finally. I don't feel like I am really, really, really in the minority. And you know, the, the great thing about NASA, particularly if you're, you know, um, at the Johnson Space Center with the Human Spaceflight Program, you're always focused on carrying out a mission. And so that becomes your identity. What mission are you working on? You know, if you're in the training department, which crews are you training? You're over in mission control. You know, which flights are you going to support? And that, you know, became the identity that brought the team together and you know other things like where are you from <laughs> what do you look like people didn't care that really was just down in the weeds you talked about seeing women in star trek on tv i don't know if this is a question or not i don't even know quite where it's going but it gets as someone who has spent time researching LGBT aerospace history, it's, it's, I don't know what the right word is. Frustrating, I don't know. But the fact that at this point in time, there's only, at least that I know of, three astronauts in the whole history of astronauts who are known to be LGBT. And it, you talk about like, identity being on the side, which is definitely true. You also think about though in the Apollo area era where these astronauts like being presented as the perfect American, you know, with the, with the wife and, you know, the kids was, was part of like the political aspect of being an astronaut. That was back then, you know, it's different than working today. Again, I don't necessarily know what the question is besides just an observation that there's so few visible examples and the ones that exist you know sally ride passed away uh, and <laughs> oh my gosh i'm forgetting her name uh, i'll have to check it but like another astronaut was outed without her consent kind of pretty traumatically while she was in space yeah Anne mclean Anne mclean um, thank you um so i'm going to answer your question this way because the, um and it goes back to what i just answered your focus is the crew that you're a part of, the mission that you're a part of, the other stuff people just don't pay attention to. It's not important. There's a significant number of astronauts right now who, who identify as LGBTQ. It's just not something they're going to go out and talk about all the time because that's not what they're focused on. They're focused on supporting the human spaceflight program. 
So just because you're not hearing about it doesn't mean it's not in existence. It's just, and that's the great thing for me about NASA. It's not the priority. We have, you know, we have a different priority. We know that everybody on that team needs to contribute because everybody is bringing something to the table. Everybody has an important role to play in ensuring that this mission is safe and successful. And that's what we're going to focus on. And that's what we're going to talk about. The other stuff just is not allowed to become a distraction. Sadly, outside, you know, in the what you, gets reported in this day and age and what people do on social media, the distraction becomes the dominant noise. But that's not the case at NASA. Yeah, and I want to be clear. I, I don't mean that everyone should be able to tell their story however they want. I'm not saying that anyone is obligated to come out with the flag waving. <laughs> that wasn't my... Uh... Uh, point um, if anybody heard that in what I was saying. It's more, I'm grateful that you're having this conversation right now. Um, I really am. Uh, because I think that uh, a person like me would have loved to talk to you and know about you when I was younger. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that there are a lot of opportunities. Um, and sometimes you just have to not let the noise become the thing that you listen to. Uh, one of the things I learned in the Naval Academy was, uh, actually, my mother would say, growing up, you had a lot of focus as a kid. But sometimes you have to be singularly focused, and you just have to decide that you're not going to pay attention to that outside noise. Um, I look at these poor kids, though, growing up right now with, you know, I don't think I could have gotten through high school with the way social media functions right now. You know, the walk around with a div your phone in your hand that keeps you constantly connected. You know, personally, I don't think that's healthy. Uh, I think we need to help these young kids growing up to learn how to ignore that. Of course, that is much easier said than done. Because I talked about before, you want to have a support system. You want to feel like you fit in in some way, shape, or form. And that's the challenge that these young kids have as they navigate through school systems and, uh, you know, other activities that they're a part of. Where do I find a place to fit in? That's why I love programs like the Washington Aerospace Scholars, because for so many of the kids who participate in that, that is finally the place where they feel like they get to fit in. They are around kids who have similar interests and that becomes their support system. And that is very powerful. Washington Aerospace Scholars is a program that the Museum of Flight does with high school juniors who are who are people like Wendy who are like, I want to be involved in space, go to space, do do whatever with space. It's funny you say that because for a brief period during COVID when there was chaos and it was online, I was actually in charge of WAS for about four weeks <laughs> because of the chaos. And I will always remember that they had launched um, Perseverance, the the Mars probe. And the, the class, the, the group was so excited. This was all virtual, by the way. This was, this was yeah. 2020 um, or 2021, all virtual. So these were kids who were not going to be able to meet each other in person. And... I remember logging in the morning of the launch. So the launch happened in the middle of the night. And there in all the chat, because the chat is all saved, were a dozen of the students who had gotten up at one in the morning and were like, is anyone watching? Oh, yeah, I'm watching. And they were just so excited. And it it means a lot to see. We've talked about community a lot here. You can just see that they found the people that they need to support them through whatever it is that's coming next. Yep. Yep. And it's great. They're back in person. Yes. It's a fantastic program. If you are a Washington state resident and you've got a, a high schooler who is interested in space, uh, I'll leave a link in the show notes. Cause this is an exceptional, awesome program and you can get college credits out of it. So yes. <laughs> definitely something to look into. So you, you talked about kind of the gen next generation. Then what is what is your hope for the next generation of 
LGBTQ plus astronauts. Well, that they're just treated like any other astronaut. That the focus again is on uh, what mission they're assigned to, um, and that the other stuff doesn't become a distraction or used, uh, you know, in any way, shape, or form against them. Uh, I think it's great because you can show up as technically you show up as an astronaut candidate and you're known as an ass can, you know, you can show up and just focus on, yeah. And the emphasis is always on the first syllable, you know, where you are in the pecking order, which is down at the very bottom. So that's where life is a plebe at the Naval Academy. (laughs) (laughs) Really prepped your plebe summer. (laughs) Bottom of the bottom. Um, So, uh, you know, that, you know, you show up as an ass can, you come together as a class because, you can, again, you know that you're not a flown astronaut. You're the new the new group. Everybody's kind of waiting to see you know, how you're going to do. And that brings you together as a class. You have that uh, common identity. And, you, you know, you just focus on your training. There's a lot to learn. And I think, you know, I want to see them be given the opportunities to – demonstrate that um, NASA made the correct decision in selecting them and then uh, for them to have lots of opportunities available to them when it comes time for them to be assigned to a mission. Your dad, as you said at the beginning, was part of the astronaut selection and and never made it to space. Uh, But you did. You you made it to space several times. Did you do you remember anything about that first interaction you had with him when you came back from STS-67, your, your first shuttle mission? No, because we had a lot of stuff to do right after post-flight, so I can't, can't even remember how long it took me to actually go back and visit. Um, but I'll tell you a fun story beforehand, before that flight, uh, for people who've been in the human space flight business for a long time. They know the name of George Abbey, long-time NASA employee, human space flight, you know, in charge of the flight crew operations directorate, astronaut assignment to missions. So George Abbey also went to the United States Naval Academy. He was in the class three years behind my dad. My dad was the brigade commander his first class year. So as I get down to NASA and I'm an astronaut candidate and uh, finishing up that and training for my first mission, I'm home on a visit one time and my dad gives me a picture of him as the brigade commander doing a room inspection for three plebes. One of them is George Abbey. <laughs> My dad said, would you like this photo? I was like, yeah, this might be nice to have in case I need some ammunition at some point in time. (laughs) So um, also in the United States Navy, there's this thing called a Tiger Cruise, where basically the ship goes out for a a short period of time and family members of the, the crew assigned to the ship are allowed to go out on the ship. So throughout my the training flow for my first mission, my dad would constantly say, hey, go talk to George Abbey and, and see if he'll let me do a tiger cruise on your flight. <laughs> <laughs> no, dad. Nope. Not going to have that conversation with Mr. Abbey. Nope. Sorry. Nice try, but no. <laughs> That's a good one. I, I, I've been on many a tiger cruise as a Navy brat myself. so Yeah. So you understand, but I'm like, dad, I'm not. No, I'm not going to Mr. Abbey. I know you give talks to groups all over the country, all over the world, and I know you talk a lot with kids and, and young people. I'm curious, specifically LGBTQ plus youth, what do you want them to remember or learn from your story? Well, I'll use my first year at the Naval Academy as an example. Like, Don't let other people tell you what you can and can't do. You know, so sometimes you just have to, again, shut out that noise and dig down inside of yourself and say, I'm going to prove them wrong. 
I'm going to show them that I deserve to be here, that I have what it takes to be here, and I'm going to work really hard to be successful, but I'm not going to let you tell me what I can and can't do, particularly if this is something that I really, really want to do, and moreover, if it's something that my family has done for decades. So some, um, I think it is important. Another thing that you need to learn how to do in life is develop that thick skin. Learn how to shut out that noise and stay focused on what it is that you want to accomplish. And along those lines, that also means finding that support system so that you do not do this on your own. Because it's not easy. What I'm saying, you know, developing this thick skin and learning how to shut out that noise, that those aren't easy things because you still have to live day in and day out in that environment. So that support system is absolutely critical and it can take a wide variety of forms. There are many groups of people out there that you can become a part of and I would say keep an open mind as to which groups uh, it is, you know, what groups that you want to explore and then possibly become a part of. You may be surprised that the group that you think you have nothing in common with becomes your best support system. And also don't fall into the trap of stereotyping yourself because let's, you know, you're in that situation because people are stereotyping you. Don't stereotype others. Give other people an opportunity to show you who they really are. Treat them like a blank slate until they show you who they are. You, again, you may be very, very surprised that this person that you think you have nothing in common with, you have a lot of in common with. So seek that common ground. Rather than focusing on what are differences or perceived differences, strive to find what you have in common and build on that. Along those lines, I was working with a high schooler a few years ago who was interning at the museum and she wanted to get into astronomy. And um, she kept saying that, like, she knows that as a woman, she's going to just have a, a much more difficult route. And she kept kind of being very doom and gloom. And I, I don't want to take away the reality of being a woman in a male-dominated environment. But I, I kind of said the same thing to her. It's like, if you're walking in assuming that everybody in this field is going to be your enemy, then that's what you're going to encounter. Let yeah. people show themselves to you. Yep. Yeah. And it may, you may find out that one of your male professors becomes your, your big cheerleader, becomes your strongest, most vocal advocate. Your wife is an accomplished scientist in her own right. What are some achievements of hers that set her apart in her field? She worked at NASA Langley for many years doing uh, atmospheric research really the beginning of climate research. Um, they uh, were flying over the tundras of Canada, looking for admissions as the permafrost was beginning to melt, did studies of contrails and how much they were contributing to pollution and climate change, which I find fascinating that once again, people are beginning to worry about contrails, particularly with the sustainable aviation fuels. So, you know, that initial research done 20, you know, 25 years ago is still very, very important and uh, rightly so they are paying attention to again. Um, she also went on to manage some of the experiments that were flying on board the International Space Station, particularly some of the experiments in the human life sciences range. And then she worked uh, public affairs. And if you ever watched any of the shuttle missions, listening to the commentary from Mission Control, she was one of the commentators, so the voice of NASA. Well, Winnie Lawrence, it's, it's been an honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule and uh, meeting with us today. Again, Sean, thanks for the opportunity and uh, fun questions. Always nice to reminisce about some of my younger days. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I especially want to thank our donors. Your financial support of the museum is what makes The Flight Deck possible. 
If you want to hear more stories from Wendy, I've included a link to a previous episode of The Flight Deck that features excerpts from her oral history in the podcast's show notes, which you can find at museumofflight.org podcast. And I would also like to hear from you. As we wrap up this season, if you want to reflect on anything you learned or heard in this episode or any of the episodes this season, you can send a note to podcast at museumofflight.org. I've, I've gotten notes from several listeners, and what everyone has shared so far is just so special. Y'all are awesome people. This is the end of Season 3 of the podcast, so we'll be taking a break for a few weeks. We've got exciting seasons planned for 2024, so make sure you are subscribed to the feed so that you get new episodes when they start dropping in a few weeks. In the several weeks of downtime, feel free to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you downloaded us from. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, see you out there, folks. Music